You know, uh, you worship what you love the most. It's truth. The human heart is always worshiping. Always. The question is, what is on the throne of your heart? Now, whether you follow Jesus or not, everybody worships something. Atheists, though they deny the existence of God, are worshipers. They worship something. And we can discern what that worship is by what makes us most angry or most excited. Because what we see is when we find out what we are most passionate about, what brings the greatest intensity of emotion out of us, reveals what we worship. You see, God made our hearts to worship him. But because of our rebellion in the Garden of Eden, we have hearts that no longer are bent towards worshiping him, but instead, because of sin, we allow our hearts to worship other things other than the one we were made to worship. We even see it in the way that we, we, we spend our money, how we spend our time, the things that we talk about the most. These things reveal the true things that we worship and love. What really is on the throne of our hearts. But we're starting a new sermon series today called Take It All. And it's a call to our church to worship Christ. It's a call for us to posture our hearts towards an all-out surrender to the one who gives us life and breath and eternal life. You see, he alone is the one worthy of worship. And as followers of Jesus, we have turned from our sin. We have trusted in Christ. So now Jesus alone is the one whom we are to worship. He alone is the one we gather together to exalt Christ together. You see, the more we behold Christ, the more that we love him. The more that you stare at Jesus the more beautiful he becomes. And so as we behold Christ together, as we look upon Jesus, it compels us to a greater and greater worship of him. You see, when we get to the Psalms, we discover rich songs and hymns and poetry that portray the beauty and the majesty of God and they lead us to behold him as the one whom we are to give glory to. And in Psalm 95, King David gives us a beckoning. He calls us to come together and to worship the Lord. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. You know, it's interesting. There's 150 psalms. 75 of them were written by King David. These psalms are songs that were sung by the people of God throughout the ages. And they would sing these songs back to the Lord. They would sing these songs to their children to teach them theology and the beauty of the Psalms is they, they display the beauty and the glory of God found in the person and work of Jesus. And in Psalm 95, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King David wrote this. Come, 
Let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. You see, God alone is the one who is worthy of worship. And so to gather this morning, I want, you know, I want us to notice in the text that what worship requires for our faith family here in Psalm 95. And the first is this. It's the command to gather. It's the command to gather. King David begins the psalm with the word come. That word come, it's an imperative. It's a command. The call to come is a royal summons from the king to his people to assemble and to gather. Now, ever since God's people were banished from his presence in the garden, God has been at work to gather his people back to himself. When God led his people out of Egypt, he rescued them in part so that they might go and worship him in his presence. Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he would frequently call upon God's people to assemble together. In Leviticus 23, we see he's, how he speaks to the different feasts and festivals that were on the calendar every year where God's people would gather. They would assemble together and they would celebrate God's faithfulness. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12, Moses writes, gather the people, men, women, dependents, and the resident aliens within your city gates. Why? So that they may listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to follow all the words of this law. You see, gathering as God's people is not just an Old Testament command. We see it in the New Testament as well. In the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we see Jews who are regularly attending a local synagogue on the Sabbath for worship. When some of these Jews, when they came to faith in Christ, they were kicked out of, they were forced out of those synagogues. And so instead of worshiping on, on Saturdays, on the Sabbath, they began worshiping on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that he was raised from the dead. Now for early believers gathering together, that was regularly a statement of faith. When you gather with other believers, you were declaring to the world, I'm with them. I'm with those who claim to know Jesus. I am with those who follow Christ. Now, as persecution increased, Christians would gather in secret, but they would gather nonetheless because it was a priority. And as Jewish Christians, as they were being persecuted for following Jesus, the writer of Hebrews encouraged them to stand firm in the gospel. He continually challenged them, don't turn back. Don't go back to your old way of life. Remain faithful to Jesus. I know it's hard. I know persecution is coming against you. 
It seems as if the, the, the intensity of the heat of the persecution for your faith in Christ is increasing. But do not back down because God is faithful. And one of the ways to help you persevere in the gospel, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10 verse 24. He says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. He's saying, listen, as persecution is increasing, one of the ways to help you to stand firm in the faith is to keep showing up at the gatherings. Don't neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. There are some who've gotten out of the habit, you know, I'm gonna take a break from gathering church. I'm gonna take a break. I'm just gonna back away for a while. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. You gotta keep going. You gotta keep gathering because it matters. Here in Psalm 95, David is calling out to God's people, come, verse one. Come, verse six. Get in here. Let's gather. We have a great God who has rescued us from hell. He has ransomed us from our sin. He has given us the blood of his son as means for our forgiveness. He has taken out the heart of stone and he has given us a heart of flesh. And he alone deserves our worship. Christ followers, gathering regularly matters. When Christy and I, we were in Africa back in January of last year, and we had the opportunity to go on a safari with a group of some other pastors and their wives and my hope was that I would at least get to see one kill, okay? I just wanted to see one. And so, truth be told, an hour off after we get off the airplane on the savannah, we get in these Jeeps and we find a leopard. And this leopard, he's on a track. He has a scent. And I'm thinking, come on, baby. Let's make this happen. And so we follow this leopard and we get to a place and we wait. Well, out to the side was an antelope by itself having a mid-morning meal. He had gotten away from his herd, lonely and isolated. The leopard had his target. And so we waited. Without paying any attention, the antelope is going about his business, eating his grass. All of a sudden, there was almost a deafening noise coming from the trees the birds were chirping and squawking really loud. And so I asked our guide, I said, what's happening? And he said, the birds are warning the antelope that he's in trouble, but he's not listening. Within a matter of moments, the antelope started walking right towards the leopard and then got him. The, the leopard jumped out, tackled the antelope, and it was over. And I thought, wow, what a picture of so many believers today. They become isolated. They get away from the pack. They get away from the herd. They get away from the church. And then there are voices calling out to them saying, you're in danger. You're in danger. The predator is, is here. He's upon you. Are you not paying attention? Listen to us. But they ignore the call. And all of a sudden, 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion looking for anyone he may devour. And they love to pick off, Satan loves to pick off those who are by themselves. Because if he has to come after 
one of us who are gathering together, he has to take on all of us. Because we have each other's back. We're family. We're going to fight for one another. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to encourage one another. We stick together. But if you get out by yourself, if you become isolated, you will find yourself being tempted, drawn away, and you will find that the enemy is seeking to eat your faith for breakfast. And I see it all the time as a pastor. Those who do not gather, those who are alone, they don't listen to warnings, and then they're in danger. And wham, it's over. You see, God did not design you to walk alone. He didn't design you to walk alone. He made you with community. Over 50 times the phrase one another shows up in the New Testament because God continually knows that we have to have one another to persevere in the faith. We need one another to go all the way. And so we must gather together. Now the excuse I hear most often is, I can worship God from a tree stand. Or I can worship God on the golf course. And I have two responses to that. The first is, yes, you can, but no, you won't. But secondly, God has commanded you to gather with his people. Since God is the one who has come up with worship, he gets to set the parameters for how he will be worshiped. And the way he designed it is for us to gather now, Kent, are you saying that I'm not allowed to worship up in a tree stand or on the golf course? That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about private worship and how to abide in Christ and how to have a quiet time and how to worship throughout the rest of your week. But what we see here in the text is do not neglect gathering together. You see, gathering together matters. We cannot allow other things to replace the gathering, the assembly of gathering as God's people. You see, you being here matters. It matters that you gather here every week. Well, Kenneth, why are you being so serious about this? Because of Colossians 1.28, Paul says, We preach Christ, warning and teaching everyone so that we might present everyone mature in Christ as one who will one day give an account for your soul and how I shepherded you. It matters to me because I desire Colossians 1.28 to present you mature in Christ. I want to present you to the Lord as one who is complete, one who has been matured in the faith. And so it matters that we not only preach Christ, but we warn from the scriptures. And the warning we see here in the text is those who do not gather. We'll see that here in just a minute as we look at the last four verses, five verses of the text. Because it matters if you're not here. You're in danger if you don't. You see, when we gather for worship, we're preaching to the enemy, you have lost. I belong to the king and I belong to the king's people. We're family. We're a body. We have one another's backs. We encourage one another. We look around the room. These are the people who are going to be at our deathbed. It matters that you build relationships and you connect with the body of Christ because God did not design you to walk with him alone. We gather for worship, and when we do, we are reminding Satan, not only did you lose at the cross and the empty tomb, but you are witnessing a foreshadowing of the future celebration that is coming in the new kingdom. 
When we gather together, we are preaching to the enemy. Looky here. This is a foretaste of what's coming in Revelation 7. This is a picture in which all of God's people, all of the redeemed throughout the ages, we will come together and we will exalt Christ together. And you get to witness God's people who come together. We love the word of Christ. We pray to Christ. We worship Christ. We make much of Christ together because this is a picture of an even greater reality and a future celebration that's coming. Hear the invitation of God from Revelation 22. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life freely. Hear me today. Come to Christ in worship. It matters that we gather together. And King David is crying out to the people of Israel, come. It's a command. So let's gather. But then notice in the text the purpose for the gathering. Number two, it's the call to worship with passion. In in verse one, David writes, come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Do you see the action words here in the text? Verse one, shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Verse two, let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. Verse six, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You see, the Psalms are filled with actions that we are to do in worship Together, as we give glory to our great God, there's singing and shouting and clapping and dancing and the raising of hands and the bowing of knees. There's different postures that we take on. Isn't it interesting that the one who made your body and changed your heart is now calling upon you to use your body in worship of the one who has changed your heart? It's amazing to think about. Your body was made by God for worship. And we see different actions, different postures, different things we are to do together to worship him who has changed us. The text says to shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Shouting is a natural impulse of victory. When your team wins, you shout. You celebrate. There's a a celebration. Well, the one who purchased your salvation has won you the victory. You see, the cross of Christ is your motivation to shout in triumph to the rock of your salvation. You see, the rock that blocked the empty tomb had to be moved because the rock of our salvation could not be stopped. So let's enter his presence with thanksgiving, for Christ has died for you. Let's sing to him with joy, for Christ has been raised for you. 
4, verse 3, the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. He is the creator of the world, verse 4. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. Verse 5, the sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. You see, the one who made the Himalayas and the one who made the Mojave Desert the one who put the Alps in their place, and the one who made the seas. He is the great king above all. And all he is worthy of worship, of glory and honor, because there is no one like him. But it's not just this great God who is the Lord over the cosmos. He's also the personal God who is Lord over your heart. Verse six, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The Lord made us. He is not dependent upon us. He made you, not the other way around. And what's interesting, verse 7, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. He cares for you. And as a shepherd is tender and loving towards the sheep under his care, the Lord is tender and loving towards you. And so as we read the Psalms, we must read them in light of Jesus. Jesus tells us in Luke 24 how we are to interpret the Psalms. And he says that the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are writing about me. Therefore, we discover in verses 3 through 5, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the great God. Jesus is the great King. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is our maker. Jesus is our God. And Jesus is our shepherd. Isn't he worthy of your worship? Isn't he worthy of you giving him all praise and glory and honor? Wes, when we gather together, let's worship with passion. Let's give him our best. Let's sing. Let this room be filled with the bellows deep within our hearts, singing and crying out and shouting and clapping and praising the one who has saved us. We are to worship with passion. Hey, listen, if we can stand and sing and shout and celebrate on a Saturday, we can stand and sing and shout all the more on a Sunday. There is far greater reason for us to celebrate on a Sunday than on a Saturday. A Saturday's win is temporary, but the win that was accomplished for us on that Sunday 2,000 years ago is worthy of our greatest glory. Let's give him our best. Let's worship the king who has changed our hearts and called us to himself. But thirdly, we must take heed of his warning of a hard heart. David tells Israel, listen up, verse 7, today... If you hear his voice, okay, now, verse 8, God speaks in the first person. 
Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. God is warning his people not to harden their hearts towards him. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massa. Okay, now what is God referencing here? Well, in Exodus 17, God's people had been traveling in the desert. They were thirsty, but there was no water for them to drink. And so they began to complain. They began to gripe over Moses. And hey, where's this water? You brought us out here to die. Why would you bring us out of Egypt? Back there, we had everything we needed. Why would you go and do this? God, what are you doing? Griping and complaining. And it happens for 40 years. You can see why God said, I'm done. I'm done with the griping. I'm done with the complaining. I'm done with the selfishness. Well, God told Moses, take his staff, strike the, walk, rot, uh, strike the rock, and water will come out. And sure enough, it did. But that moment was so significant that in Exodus 17, Moses named that place Massa, which means testing. And he named it Meribah, which means fighting. They continually turned their hearts away from the Lord. And eventually in Numbers 14 at Kadesh Barnea, God said, that's it. Those of you who are 20 years old and older, you're not going into the promised land. You will not enter my rest. Those who are 20 years old and below, you will get to go in. The two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb. Because they were one of the two of the 12 spies that went in and said, we can do this. The other 10 said, we can't. And so what we see here is that God is growing frustrated with his people because they continually turn their hearts away from him. Now, the question that I've been asking of the text is, what's the connection between gathering to worship with passion, verses 1 through 7, and hardening our hearts in verses 8 through 11. I believe it's because if we neglect gathering together and worshiping with passion, our hearts will grow hard towards the Lord. Remember, you worship what you love the most. Israel loved themselves the most. They neglected to worship God with their hearts. They had seen what he had done at the Red Sea. They had seen him provide manna from heaven. He provided food. But they kept forgetting. And they hardened their hearts, and they no longer worshiped him from their hearts. You see, selfishness produces a hard heart towards God. The people of God continually put themselves first. And so God brought judgments. Question, are you putting yourself, yourself first? Are you one who's saying, listen, Sunday is my only day off. This is my day. Do you see your income as my money? Do you see your time as this is what I want to do with my time? You see, selfishness creeps up into our hearts. Has your love for God grown cold? 
Worse yet, has it grown lukewarm? You see, maybe even parents, can I challenge you? Do not compromise on allowing your, chi- your children to love things more than Jesus first. You've got to be diligent. If you make school or if you make sports a higher priority than the local church, you're teaching your child what really matters. And quite honestly, parents, hear me. If you make gathering with church optional, you're teaching your child how to be an Israelite. You're teaching them that, hey, your life's about you. And parents, that's not what we do. We have to diligently teach our kids, your life is not about you. Your life is about Christ and about serving others. you, You don't exist for selfishness. You don't exist to be lazy and to do whatever you want to do. We don't exist for ourselves. In a world, in a culture, in a world that says it's all about you, isn't it interesting? Our culture is not happy. It's amazing the suicide rate right now because people just aren't happy. We keep telling them it's about you. Find your own happiness. You can't find it because you can't find happiness in yourself. You're made to find your happiness in Christ. And your life is not about you. It's not about what you can get. It's not about what you want. It's about Christ and then serving others out of the overflow of who Christ is and what he has done for you. May we heed the warning here that If we do not gather, if we don't worship with passion from our hearts, we will turn into Israel, verse 8, and harden our hearts just as they did back at Massa and at Meribah. Okay, so how can we make the most out of our Sunday morning gatherings? How can we make the most out of this gathering? Let me give you three quick ways. Three quick ways. There are three P words. Number one is pray. Pray. Pray for your heart. Ask God, prepare me. I want to worship. I want to meet with you. God, I pray for those who are preaching today. I pray for those who are leading in worship. God, I pray for those in preschool and children and students and adults. I pray for my small group leader. God, give them wisdom. God, would you get my heart to hear a word from you? Prayer, really what it does is it tills the ground of your heart to receive the seeds of the word. So you pray. Number two, prepare. Prepare, go to bed early, lay your clothes out on Saturday nights, lay out your keys and your wallets, you know where everything is, you can get the diaper bag ready, okay, just get everything organized, you prepare on Saturday night, so Sunday morning is much easier. Single moms, can I just say, I'm so proud of you, it is so hard just to get here, because you're dealing with kids and transportation and dirty diapers and throw up on clothes. Can I just let you know, I'm just so proud of you. And part of preparation for us in this room who are not single moms or those who have moved out of caring for children, it's now time for you to step up and help. It means on Sunday mornings, you're in the parking lots helping carry diaper bags. I mean, you're trying to find ways to make it as easy as possible. We're doing well as a church when no visitor ever has to touch a door handle. And we're doing really well as a church when no visitor feels a raindrop on their head because we've got umbrellas ready to go. Like we're serving, we're preparing people to meet with Jesus. So we pray, we prepare, and the last one is prioritize. Men have the conviction to say that no matter what, I'm going to gather with God's people. I'm going to lead my family. 
It means Sunday morning you wake up early, you make your wife coffee, you make her breakfast, you get the kids up, you get their clothes ready, you help with breakfast. Your job is to make your wife's job Sunday morning as easy as possible. This is what leadership looks like as men, as we wash feet, we get dirty, we want to put our wife's needs before our own. We want to make sure it's as easy as possible for her to be able to get herself ready. This is what we do as men, and we set the pace. This is a conviction. When kids start saying, I don't want to go, you get to say, I don't care. You don't have a vote in this. We get to go to the house of the Lord, and we're going to be happy about it, dadgummit. (laughs) We're going to be excited. We're going to go in the house of the Lord and worship, so let's have good attitudes. I know how it is in the car on your way here. That's why I'm so proud of you for being here. But can I say it matters? It matters for your soul. It matters for your perseverance in the gospel. This leads us to our impact point, and it's this. Unless you're providentially hindered, gather every week with Westwood. Make it a conviction in your heart. Say, I'm not compromising on this. Man, these, this is something I'm going to work around. Conviction is not a word that's used often in our culture. It's something that old people say. It's something that is inconvenient. Convictions are inconvenient, but they're there for a purpose. And so you're saying, by God's grace, unless we are providentially hindered, we're going to gather. We're going to be with God's people because it matters that we are there. Church family, you worship what you love the most. And so as we start 2019, allow your hearts to say, Jesus, you're the one I love the most. You're my greatest joy and my greatest delight. I'm here to worship, and I want you to take it all.